remember that no bastard ever won war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Oscar Watch. I'm your host, Stephen Bugio. Alex Riviello is not here due to a family emergency. He had to leave last minute. So we wish them all the best and hope for good news. He will be back next week. However, the show must go on. And joining me tonight is a very special guest. Uh, Internet users dating back to the Usenet days may know his work. The great Roger Ebert once called him the best of the web-based critics. He is a prolific film reviewer, fantasy novelist, radio personality, and cinephile extraordinaire, Mr. James Berardinelli of Real Views. James, welcome to the show. Great to be here. It is uh, fantastic in our little pre-show conversation. I mentioned that this was uh, kind of a big deal for me. Uh, back in the early days of my internet uh, use, I think in the late 90s, early 2000s, I stumbled across Real Views and was enamored by all of your writings in particular. And you really, uh, you kind of did inspire me to uh, get into movie reviewing, which I have been doing Definitely not as a job for about 10 years now. So it's, so this is a big moment, and I want to say thank you for the inspiration. It's, it's startling to me that I've been uh, online, been writing online now for over 20 years, coming close to 25 years now. Um, and it, it, you know, you, you, generally speaking, you never think of yourself as, as old until somebody does or says something that reminds you that... <laughs> Maybe you're not as young as you used to be. And, and I, I just recently was talking to somebody, and they said, you know, I've been reading your stuff online ever since I was in sixth grade. <laughs> and this was an adult, a guy in, in graduate school. <laughs> so, yeah, this, this, yeah, every once in a while you, you just realize that the years do seem to, to, to pass by. And what, to me... Well, what had been at that at that point when I started? I started writing reviews in in really tail end of 1991 into 1992, wow. and I started putting them up on news Usenet in the, you know some of the old old uh, groups. I mean, it used to be Rec Arts Movies and Rec Arts Movies Reviews, and I started doing that in '93, and so that was really where I. I started with the online stuff, the um, it, the um, you know the the World Wide Web iteration of Real Views, which at that point was just a collection of the, the reviews I had put up on uh, mm-hmm. on the Newsnet news groups. That began in 1996. After in late '95, I decided I wanted my own website, so I went out and arranged to get it and. And then I decided after I'd done that, well, now it's time for me to go go to the studios and convince them I'm legitimate so I don't have to, you know, my routine at that point was to go out every Friday night and Saturday and see all the new releases and then write the reviews Saturday night and Sunday. So basically I had no weekends. And uh, also I had to pay for everything. So I decided I was going to try to become legitimate. And that took took a long time in, in late 96 and into 97 before the, the problem I was encountering was 
all the publicists in that era were pretty much old school publicists. And as soon as you mentioned something like the Internet, well, they didn't know what that was. And I remember one conversation I had with a publicist, and the first thing she asked me was, well, what paper do you write for? And I said, well, I don't write for a paper. I write, uh, you know, I, I write the reviews are online at realviews.net. And just got this blank look. And she <laughs> said, well, okay, but what paper do you write for? And it went back and forth and back. And, and her, 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 her final verdict on it was, okay, so you don't write for a paper. Why are you talking to me? <laughs> basically, I mean, she wasn't rude like that, but that was pretty much the the upshot of it. She couldn't understand. During the course of our, our discussion, she asked me about radio shows. She asked me about television. She, she, she asked me about papers and magazines and weeklies. And, you know, she couldn't understand this concept. I tried to explain the Internet to her, but it was... She didn't have. She didn't even have email. Oof. So, well, this was ninety ninety six, ninety seven, and there were a lot of people that didn't have email then. Um, so, eventually, what happened was um, in February of ninety seven, I ran into an intern for this publicist who was internet savvy, and he managed to to grease the wheels. But for many many years, it was the same reaction over and over again. You know, what paper do you write for? Well, I write online for realviews.net. And, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> the, the tacit, you know, what they didn't say was, oh, you're not a real critic. You're just one of those people. That, they didn't even understand the Internet at that point. Right. <laughs> uh, and it was Roger Ebert's uh, intervention, so to speak, that uh, opened a lot of doors because Roger was extremely Internet-savvy. He was. His reviews were yeah. His reviews were up on CompuServe in in the early nineties, and he was he was of all the film critics that I I met during the nineties, he was the most progressive in so far as the internet and technology were concerned. So, um, he he was able to um, combine because he had you know legitimacy across all forms of media. Oh. So he he opened a lot of doors. He he was enabled. He enabled me to get accredited at the Toronto Film Festival, which helped a lot in terms of uh, respectability. But you know, nowadays, when when you look back on those 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 days, it was it's strange to think how odd the internet was. Have you ever have you gone to somebody? Uh, recently, I mean, if like assuming you you do do this, and they ask you what website you work for because print is apparently on its way out. Has that ever happened? Yeah, I, 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 it's it, it's interesting because as as the years evolved, <laughs> I transitioned somewhat from you know I started being exclusively uh, web based, and then I picked up uh, radio shows along the way. Um, over the the years, I've done probably half a dozen radio shows on a regular basis from time to time. Um, typically, you you know, I, since I I do not charge people for radio time, um, what happens is if you're on a talk station in particular, talk sta- talk hosts tend to get fired fairly regularly, <laughs> and so as a result, when they get fired, I just sort of I don't get fired because I wasn't getting paid in the first place, but I sort of you know disappear with them. But uh, so I I picked up radio gigs along the way. I picked up newspaper 
uh, you know, here, here's old the odd school. thing going, yeah, going from new school to old school. So now I have newspaper, uh, you know, and these are dailies; they're not weeklies. So I have, uh, so I've, I've picked up some of the traditional things along the way. But you do get asked, yes, what website do you write for? And it's pretty funny when I say, well, you know, realviews.net. I also write for, you know, Calkins papers. Uh, and it's the papers oftentimes that, that get me the blank stare. So, and it's, you know, the, the Broadcast Film Critics Association, which is one of the, the bigger, most prestigious of the uh, uh, critics associations. It, um, now accept high-profile websites as uh, you know for for possible consideration for membership, and oh. you know they're broadcast, so no papers. It's it's radio, television, and internet. Now, internet you don't just you you can't blog and and get it get into there. Their their membership is fairly slack, but um, I. Did when I applied um, to them, I did put RealViews.net as my number one affiliation, and then put a couple of radio stations after that. But when I discussed them, uh, discussed with them about admittance, I, they made it clear that it was uh, RealViews.net was getting me admitted, not the radio station. So that yeah. that shows you where things have shifted over the years. Yes. So the power now lies with the internet, not so much with the. Uh, the traditional methods of uh, conveying information. You've been doing this for 20 years now. This is the 20th anniversary of Real Views, the official website, you said. I'm curious as to how your um, your sense, your taste in movies has changed in those 20 Because you've seen a lot of movies and you've written uh, over, uh, must be three or 4,000 reviews. Like how... Uh, like how do you like, how do you keep going, and how have you seen the the film filmmaking shift, and also on a personal level, how have how have you changed along with it? Now, films have really changed in the last twenty five years, and I, I don't you you maybe don't notice it on a year to year basis, but when you look back, you can clearly see how it how they've changed and evolved. The nineties were actually a pretty good decade for independent films, smaller That's... dramas. It was a it was as fertile a an era as the early seventies, late sixties, early seventies, uh, and there was a lot of experimentation. And uh, then you got into the the two thousands, and that well kind of ran dry. And a lot of the independent studios that had been making so much of a uh, you know their mark in the in the nineties. Dried up, went bankrupt, got bought up. I mean, names like uh, Fine Line Features, um, well, Sony Pictures Classics is still around. Uh, Miramax, Miramax dominated during the uh, during that era, yeah. and then mid to late nineties, they won a lot of a lot of Oscars, a lot of awards were well, you know, critical yeah, darlings there. Yeah. yeah, they 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 got sold and then sort of disappeared. There were other others, you know. Labels. Gramercy was a, an indie film uh, giant at that point. It's it was then bought up, and now the now it's being used to schlock you know bad horror movies and stuff. Like, I mean, but there were there were a lot of strong indie studios or you know distributors during the nineties 
that basically disappeared in the 2000s, and with them went the, what you would call the mainstream art film in industry. And the mid-market started disappearing. And, you know, digital, right. which was supposed to make, uh, you know, sort of open theaters up to smaller films, had exactly the opposite effect. It, it closed it off, and right. multiplexes became very um, big-budget, blockbuster-oriented, and especially, you know, maybe five, six, seven years ago, the shift really began in earnest, where, you know, you would you would go... I remember the, the weekend that Avengers opened, the first Avengers movie. Okay, 2012, yeah. Yeah, I remember going into a, a, a 24-plex that was showing that. And on that opening day... 18 of the 24 uh, the, uh, you know, auditoriums in that theater were showing Avengers. Jesus. Now, I don't know whether they were playing to sold-out houses or not, but that it was basically, you know, Avengers and then, you know, a couple of, you know, auditoriums for things that had opened the, the previous week. But, um, and then it's become a little bit like that where, you know, it's the the one and done philosophy. Films open huge, and then crash and burn the next week. And you know, you talk to a a couple of people, and they think that five, ten years from now, that we're going to be back to the dramas and the uh, the sort of the mid mid market films, because Hollywood is going to be so desperate just to make money that they aren't going to be chasing the, the, the big blockbusters so much. They're going to be chasing smaller films. So if there's an, a, a blockbuster implosion over the next few years, it's probably actually a good thing for the, the movie industry uh, in general. Agreed. Because what we're seeing now is, is, is not encouraging. It, it has been a very disappointing summer, uh, especially in terms of big block. There's been blogs and think pieces written about the underperforming and just the terribleness of these movies. And I would, I for one would welcome the $40 million adult, adult drama to once again, have a, have a, have a lifespan, have a, have a timeline well, here at, in the world. At least in the last three months of the year, there are some of them coming out yeah. because it's Oscar season now and the smaller films, you know, with the exception of over the years, you, you get some, some years when, Big budget films, you know, do in fact, you know, sweep through the Oscars. Oh, yeah. you know, most recently, Titanic and Return of the King were, you know, just created these tsunami, Oscar night tsunamis. Um, so occasionally that happens, but for the most part, it's it's the spotlights and the uh, Birdman's <laughs> and uh, those sorts of films which which tend to dominate Oscar night. Because those are the films that, when you get down to it, that people care about. You, you know, this year, what has there been to care about? You know, uh, Batman v Superman. I mean, no. Civil <laughs> War. You know, Captain America: Civil War. Um, you know, Suicide Squad. These are not movies you care about. You might enjoy them as you're watching them. Um, you know, I enjoyed Civil War. I'll admit it. I wasn't. I didn't think it was a great film, but I thought it was entertaining. Um, 
you know, but it, did it make me care about any of the characters or the situations? No. Typically, when you get to the the Oscar contenders, and this has been the case through the years, even you know back back to when the Oscars started, the films that tend to win the Oscars are the ones that make you care in one way or another about the character or characters um, that are most prominent, and. You know, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So, and the okay. reason that Titanic did win isn't just because it was, um, you know, a, a great spectacle, which it was. It isn't because it, it captured the attention of this so-called four-corner demographic, which is uh, teenage boys, teenage girls, older men, and older women. That's the four-corner demographic, mm-hmm. uh, which it, it did capture that but because it gave you characters that you cared about. Ultimately, that is the, the link between all the Oscar winners. It's very difficult to find one corny, not corny, a good choice or a bad choice, where you don't care about the character. Shakespeare in Love is, is one of the most undeserving Oscar winners of all time. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, you still cared about the characters in that <laughs> film. Um, my personal most hated Oscar film of all time was Terms of Endearment. Ah, 1983. But, yeah, you cared about the characters in that film. And my favorite Oscar winner of all time is uh, Patton. And you cared about the character in that film, as bizarre as that might seem, because George S. Patton was not a particularly nice guy. He was a bit of a weirdo. He was a nutcase, brilliant general without a question, public relations nightmare. Uh, but by all accounts, you know, most people didn't like him. Nevertheless, the film was uh, savvy. It was you know, perfectly directed and perfectly written and perfectly acted so that you cared about Patton. Mm-hmm. That's the, the commonality across all of the Oscar films. Yeah, And you... Absolutely, just took my segue because that it, we have our first major biopic that we have we have been talking about here on Oscar Watch, and that is Patton, the 1970 uh, Best Picture Academy Award winner, and it is a thrilling look at the life of General Georges Patton, as you say. Who, yes, he was a jerk, but when it came time to let's just say win the war, he was the guy to help facilitate it, and. Uh, on, a, on on that note, I, I, I asked you here because in, I think on two separate occasions, you have written down your top 100 films. And on each time, Patton was at the top of that list. And you have seen thousands of movies, as, as we said. What is it about Patton that makes, that makes it, of all the films, across 20 years, across 40 years, wh- why is that the number one for you? I get asked that question a lot, especially since uh, Patton came out when I was about three years old. So obviously I did not see it during its initial theatrical run. Um, You know, you asked earlier about how my tastes have changed as a film goer over the years. Well, the top 100 films. It's a a very personal list, a very eclectic list, but it's a a personal list. There was never any question that Patton was going to be at the top of that list for me. Um, 
very few films have exerted the power that that one has. And it, it, it works, I think, on every level. I don't think there's really a failing in that film. Uh, you know, I think that the, the George C. Scott performance in that movie uh, would rank among the top five all-time performances, male or female, uh, in cinema. Now, I, I'm not prepared to tell you what I think the other four are. <laughs> okay. But I think that, that that's one of the all-time great performances. I think that Carl Malden also often gets slighted because although he's not as dynamic or as charismatic as uh, George C. Scott, um, he is in many ways the glue that holds that film together. He's he's sort of our perspective. You know, we don't really look through Patton's eyes through much of that film. No, you know, we're with him, but we sort of look uh, through um, you know through through the, the Carl Malden's eyes, Bradley's eyes. Yeah, and and that 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 gives us a view of both Patton the demon. Patton, the great general, and Patton, the, the human being. And uh, I don't think many, many, it, it, Francis Ford Coppola wrote the screenplay. Yes, he did. And he, I think, brilliantly captured all the aspects of the man's character, because it would have been so easy to write a film that demonized Pat, Patton, or, you know, that would have been the Oliver Stone version. Uh, or a film that lionized Patton, and that would have been something that uh, John Wayne would have been involved in. Uh, but this is a film that, that captured both aspects and all of the little details in between. Um, you know, his, his, his deeply held religious beliefs, um, and also his belief in reincarnation. Um, some of the most haunting uh, moments of that film have him looking out over battlefield. Well, not battlefields now, you know, but things were you know, areas where battles took place thousands of years in the past, yeah. and recounting how he was there. And he wrote poetry as well, and his his. His poetry, which they they use in the film, and through the glass and darkening the age old life, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, those are actual poems written by Patton. They're not fictitious creations for the film. Um, but to me, the uh, perhaps the most chilling moment of all, you know, everybody talks about the the opening speech at the beginning, and and what a way to start the film. That's brilliant. It's uh, it's uh, iconic, and it's been parodied yeah. on so in so many different places of pop, well, across I, pop culture. A little, little bit of trivia about that: that okay. was not supposed to start the movie. Oh. That was originally planned to be the opening after the intermission. That that'd be a way to wake people up after an intermission. That's for sure. But they decided to to sort of shift it around and. And uh, so we, we get this, this, this brilliant introduction to uh, Patton through that opening speech. And I, I will not uh, you know, pretend it's not a, a great opening speech. But for me, it's actually the closing voiceover that is, is really in many ways the most memorable moment of the film. 
this sure. is where he's walking Willie, his dog. And there's sort of a, um, you know, a, a, during this, this scene, there's, there's a foreshadowing of, of how he will actually die when he almost gets hit by a, a, car, a truck. But the voiceover, as he's walking Willie and sort of fading into the distance, he's talking about uh, the Roman conquerors and how they would come back from war with their prisoners. Um, and as they were riding in this triumphant chariot with you know, their families by them and you know, wreathed in glory, but there's an advisor standing behind them, whispering in their ears that all glory is fleeting. And every time I see that, that scene and hear those words, it gives me goosebumps. Yeah. I, I got goosebumps just you repeating them. It's, uh, yeah. it's a devastatingly effective effective scene in the whole thing the whole thing works i find it works i the the movie i believe is it's based off of non first person accounts uh, so, uh not out of autobiographical accounts like they weren't weren't able to get his journal so it's really everyone else's views like omar bradley in particular his views on what Patton was and i find that works that helps make it Simultaneously, it demythologizes Patton. We see every all his flaws. We see his how he gets he gets so angry at that uh, that soldier who is has um, uh, PTSD. But it also helps mythologize him as this great reincarnated soldier, this great general, and it manages to walk that line so very well that you don't even notice and it's just it what ends what ends up happening is this compelling nature of this compelling look of this in, incredibly complex and nuanced character that as you said like every aspect of this from the technical side to Francis Ford Coppola's screenplay down to and of course George C Scott's performance is absolutely masterful and I'm trying to think of a failing this movie has. I'm trying to be like, well, how about a counterpoint with this? But I'm not really coming up with anything at all. It's so wonderfully well done that you wish they would show this in, in film class as to how uh, how the how movies are supposed to be made. I think. Well, yeah. Another another few things about this. One of the first things is that um, I often talk about you know people come to me with historical films and they, they point out this flaw or this flaw or this flaw in the movie and my, my response is always, it's a movie, it's not a history textbook. You know, movies take license with historical events you know, all the time. They have to do that in order right. to, to tell a story. Patton is one of the few history-based films that is almost uh, you know, historically, it's historically exacting. It's very true to the way things went. Yes. Um, I would, in fact, of of all the historical films I've seen, non-documentaries, I would rank this as the number two um, most truthful or most accurate uh, behind Gettysburg. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, Gettysburg. That's very accurate. Yeah. It, well, yeah, Gettysburg was 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 based on all the dialogue in Gettysburg was based on actual, uh, you know, historical uh, 
records. Um, There is some license taken in patent. There are some of the the conversations that he has, you know, private conversations, which are, although based on recollections by uh, people uh, other than Patton, because Patton died a couple of years after the war ended. Um, And, uh, you know, but you've got people recalling, you know, generally what was said several years ago. So you have to bring some artistic license into that. But uh, the broad picture is is very accurate. The scenes I love, you know, from a comedic point of view, are the 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 German scenes, <laughs> the, the scenes where uh, you know they're where they're trying to figure out because you know they they were convinced that Patton was the greatest general that the Allies had, Allies had, and you know so they were always trying to figure out where 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 what they were doing with Patton, where Patton was. You know that those are those are some fun scenes. Those are obviously made up scenes. I mean, not the fact that the Germans were terrified of Patton. They were, and, and of course, the, uh, the Allies knew that, but the, the, just the actual scenes themselves are, are fictitious. But, yeah. um, you know, the, so that's, that's, that's one of the things. Another, another thing is, you know, the battle scenes in this movie, and there aren't many of them. A lot of it is, is character-based. So, mm-hmm. But you do have several battle scenes in them, and they are really well done. You can't tell... Um, you know, even with all of the CGI special effects that we have today, you can't tell that these are not real battles. And in fact, the Absolutely. way that they did them is they used real tanks. <laughs> he commissioned tanks, but they used real tanks, and they essentially had, you know, played little war games. That's how they did the uh, the battle scenes. Uh, but they're they're very believable. And oh, absolutely. There's a there's a sense of um practical of tactileness throughout the entire film that like i forgot what practical warfare looked like because i've been so inundated with cgi this day these days but that first battle scene when he's taking on rommel's forces was just it was intense because they were really blowing all that stuff up and you don't see that anymore it's just fascinating it's a fascinating thing it's a wonderful thing and and the uh then there's jerry goldsmith's score Oh. Oh. Um, which, which is you know, it, it, it's one of the great scores of all time. As a matter of fact, at one point, um, I went through and I did uh, you know my my favorite scores of all time, and this was I think it was 2005 when I did this, and um, Patton the, the score for Patton was number three on my list okay i mean that was so i mean you know then that's when you consider all of the great scores written by all of the the great composers over the years i mean that's it's 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 memorable memorable and yet i believe it um lost the best original score to love story which came out that year yeah well but the love, the theme from Love Story is it's a, that's also very iconic. But there's something you know, like you, like even even if you haven't seen the Patton movie, I feel like as though you hear the score and you go, "This is this is from that war movie, right?" It has that that cadence and that energy of a of a battle, I think, of, of battles, and it's uh, it, it's probably playing right now. I probably have edited it in ever so slightly, so it's guiding our conversation along. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it, it um, you know, it was certainly, 
you know, it's, you, know you mentioned a love, love story won that year. But I think if you look, you know, as always with Oscars, looking back is, you know, when you look back on any Oscar after a certain amount of time, that tells you, um, you know, what, what history has uh, recorded as, as the best film, the best score, and I would think it's hard to believe that anybody looking back through all these years would, would think that uh, the, the theme from a Love Story is more impressive or better or more historically lasting than that of uh, Patton. Absolutely. And which is not to say that uh, it ha- Patton, you know, it was going to steamroll over everything. It had some competition. Five easy, five, easy, five easy Pieces came out that year. Love Story, MASH, and Airport were also up for the uh, best picture. It, uh, Patton won seven, so he's, he's doing pretty. But, yeah, those are some, those are some damn fine movies it, uh, it won. And I think we can, right, we can definitely agree that Patton is the one that is most deserving of all of those films. Like, Ma- like MASH is fantastic. MASH is iconic. But I think Patton is just better. I think I, and then, I, then we have George C. Scott's reaction to the Oscar. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, I believe he is the only one to have turned down an Oscar. Yes. Now, you get people like Marlon Brando, <laughs> right. who, send, who sends out somebody to it, but he still accepted the Oscar. He may have had one of the most uh, bizarre and unconventional approaches to accepting it, but he still accepted it. Yes, he did. Um, George C. Scott rejected it. Yeah, he rejected it when they when they announced the nomination. He flat out said, if they give it to me, I'm not going to accept it he was uh i think he was at his farm upstate uh when they announced the award and he was like sleeping or something so he was literally he was nowhere nowhere to be found when they when they called his name and yeah i often wonder whether his adamant his adamant (laughs) attitude (laughs) towards that (laughs) actually may have helped him win it because there were i think there there are people in hollywood of course who are who may have just been perverse enough to want to see what happens if he actually wins you know will he you know will he stay true will he you know truly not accept it but he wasn't at the ceremony that night um didn't accept it uh when they tried to send him the statue later wouldn't accept it wow Um, to his dying day he never had he never had that oscar in his possession um He's a bit of a prickly individual. This he sounds like he sounds like, but uh, yeah, I believe he uh, famously called the Oscars when he was nominated for Patton a two-hour meat parade. And all I was thinking was meat parade, yes, but I Lord knows I wish it was two hours these days. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> now he actually he reprised the role of Patton. Yeah, I was shocked to find that there was a sequel to this because you think of you you think of movies nowadays having sequels. You don't think of Best Pictures having yes. sequels to it, really. It's, it's it was uh, it came out in the eighties. What, what, yeah, sixteen it? years later, nineteen eighty six. Now, for me, um, you know, that was past the point when I had decreed that Patton was my favorite movie of all time. Which, as I mentioned earlier, that that was probably something I I decided around nineteen eighty three. So 
I remember. It was a Sunday night movie. Uh, it was a made-for-TV movie. Oh, it was made-for-TV. You know, movie, movie of the movie of the week. You know, big, big, made-for-TV movie. Only the only returning actor was George C. Scott. But then again, you know, who else could you really have had returning? I mean, I don't think Omar Bradley was in the movie. Um, I believe Eisenhower was was in. Uh, oh, they, fin- the they finally they finally cast an Eisenhower. Yeah, was, he was always that figure hovering over everything in the original. Yeah. But anyways, so I, the last days of Patton was. I mean, I was just 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 waiting for it. Yeah, and just looking at this, Richard Dicehart played uh, Eisenhower. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but here, you know, here here was the, the problem with the mo- movie was that well, there were two problems with it. The first problem was it did not use the Jerry Goldsmith score. And if you ever want to know how important that Jerry Goldsmith uh, score was to the original Patton, go watch The Last Days of Patton, and it is a gaping hole. Oof. The, 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 you know, whatever music they substituted was just not there. And I, I always remember, I was thinking at the time, why in the world wouldn't you pay the extra money just to have the rights to use that m- music in this this film? But anyway, the other problem was Patton basically spent half the movie lying in bed. Oh, uh, he gets he gets injured fairly early in the in the film. Yeah. The, you know, the, the, the car accident, or the car what? accident that did. I, I, he has a broken neck as a result of that. And he actually, he wasn't killed in the car accident. He was then in the hospital for a long time. And believe me, it seemed in the movie like it was forever. Um, and so you get, the, you get George C. Scott basically spends somewhere between the half and two-thirds of the movie lying in bed unable to do more than sort of like blink and occasionally speak because his neck was broken, so he really couldn't do much, and then eventually dying at the end. It's, I don't know whether it was, I don't think it was what I expected. (laughs) It seems like such an ignoble end for such a noble and larger-than-life character. I'm I'm now not thrilled to see that movie. Yeah, no, it, it's not really something that you 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 need to see. Um, you, you know, it, it, uh, it it's very 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 strange, actually. Okay. It's like a, it's a, a cash grab or something, or or maybe George C. Scott well, was like, yeah, I don't I don't think it was a cash grab. I think it was just somebody thought you know the, the genesis of it was somebody you know they, this was when they still made lots of tv movies mm-hmm. and somebody at one of the networks thought well you know this is you know sort of an, an interesting story you know we we've already seen what happened but you know what about the you know Patton's death you know we didn't see that in the movie so they went and they they commissioned a, a screenplay it was based on the same book i mean Ladislaw uh, Fargo's book which was the main source for Patton, was also the main source for the last days of Patton. And, uh, yeah, so we, we and, and then it, at some point, they were originally not going to cast George C. Scott in. They were going to cast somebody else. 
you know, because it was oh, a made-for-TV no, no. movie, and there were, and and somebody said, well, yeah, George C. Scott did the that Christmas Carol made-for-TV movie a few years ago. Um, that, you know, I think it was '84 or whatever. Very, very uh, well received. Uh, mm-hmm. TV adaptation of the Christmas Carol. Maybe he might be willing. I mean, you know, send 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 him the script. See if he's interested in playing Patton again. And turns out he was. Uh-huh. And uh, so that that's the way he became uh, Patton again. And I think if not for his participation, that movie would well and truly be forgotten. I mean, it's not well remembered now, but it's. It would really have been forgotten if he, if somebody else had played Patton. Okay. I guess I will remember George C. Scott as Patton walking off into that uh, that field in Bavaria, talking about a, a Roman a Roman emperor, a Roman warrior, triumphant, and that is where I will leave him forever. <laughs> I know, I yeah. know, he, I, I know he died, but there's something just so wonderful about. Sometimes you just gotta. Like you leave a character in a place like that, and you you just, you can just let him stay there. And as fascinating as something as the last days of Patton probably could have been, it seems sounds like it did not really work out all that well. Uh, no, it 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 didn't achieve what it potentially could have yeah. achieved. Um, and and I think that was the real disappointment about that. Yeah. That you know, and you know, but uh, you, know, you know, nothing takes away from the uh, the from the. The 1970 film. Exactly. We always have, always have Patton. We always have George C. Scott being so good that I think people call the real Patton impo- the imposter Patton yeah. because, uh, like, if the movie can be docked for any points of, of historical credibility, it's that apparently the real Patton had a much higher pitched voice. Yeah, he did. Yeah, not not quite as impressive. Not quite as impressive. So I, it's it's one of those roles where I can't. I I just he is so good. He is so iconic in it that I can't just imagine the actual Patton. It's like it's like meeting. It's like meeting your. It's like meeting your your hero, and then they're just not what uh, you thought they would be. By the way, you are exactly what I thought you'd be, and I'm so excited about that. But it's like one of those. The reality is the reality is never as great as the fiction. Here, the fiction is so much better than the reality. I think it's just it's just it's just marvelous. He's um, right, and he might not have accepted the Oscar, but he damn sure deserved that Oscar. Uh, I will. We, we can definitely all agree on that. It's one of the most iconic and memorable American, just movie roles. Just yeah, regard in all the history of film, he it's one of the best. Just instantly recognizable. He's charming. He's tenacious. He's a jerk. He's soft. He's philosophical. It's, it's everything you want in a film. I think really through the, through the travail of ages, midst the pomp and toils of war, have I fought and strove and perished countless times upon a star, as if through a glass and darkly the age-old strife I see. For I fought in many guises, many names, but always me. And that, I think, is our exit notes. And James Bardinelli, it was uh, fantastic having you here. I think we uh, Patton definitely deserved the Best Picture Oscar that year. Yeah, I don't have any questions about that. <laughs> okay. Well, that's uh, absolutely agree here. 
thank you so much once again. Ladies and gentlemen, you can read all of James Berardinelli's uh, works on realviews.net. Is it .net? Yes. Realviews.net. He also, and you can read my review of Patton there. Just go to the search bar, type in Patton, and it'll bring you there. It's a what? It's an absolutely wonderful review. You also have a series of fantasy novels that are out. Uh, I believe The Last Whisper of the Gods, and you can find those on Amazon. Yeah, uh, perhaps perhaps wherever fine books are sold, or if you if you want to learn a little bit more about them, you can at, at my website. There's a little tab called My Books that you can go to, and uh, you know there's a trilogy that came out uh, late last year, early this year, and in fact I've got another series that's going to you know first book of that will come out late this year. Oh, you are very busy. We applaud you and we thank you for your contribution to the art and craft of film reviewing. It was a pleasure having you. And well, it was great to be here and to talk about Patton. Yeah. So, uh ladies and gentlemen, this has been Oscar Watch. We'll be back next week. Alex will be back next week, we certainly hope. And until then, we will see you at the movies. For over a thousand years, Roman conquerors returning from the wars enjoyed the honor of a triumph, a tumultuous parade. In the procession came trumpeters and musicians and strange animals from the conquered territories, together with carts laden with treasure and captured armaments. The conqueror rode in a triumphal chariot, the dazed prisoners walking in chains before him. Sometimes his children, robed in white, stood with him in the chariot or rode the trace horses. A slave stood behind the conqueror, holding a golden crown and whispering in his ear a warning that all glory is fleeting.